Um, originally from Yarmouth, but spent most of my life in um, the Vancouver area. Um, I grew up um, basically in a family that wasn't particularly um, religious, um, but I yeah, had an understanding of the um, Christian faith basically through um, a local um, United Church that had a Sunday school bus that used to come around and pick up the kids. Married in my early 20s. I had a son and um, continued to try to, to live my life the, the best way I thought I could. Um, things weren't going particularly well for me. Um, my marriage was breaking down. And then I had a sales rep that, um, that I worked with that listened to God's um, calling and decided and, and um, decided to take me to lunch and witness to me. And it was um, through that day of witnessing that I came to realize that I never really was a Christian before. So it wasn't until I accepted the fact that, that I needed a savior, that I needed Jesus Christ, that, uh, um, and it was through that, uh, that conversation that I, I started to have that understanding. Um, the following Sunday after that lunch, uh, I had a coworker that I um, had recently found out was a Christian, and I asked her if I could join her and her family at church that Sunday. And she, um, so she invited me to church and her introduction to her pastor as I walked into the church is, hey, this is my friend Ken, he's here to accept Christ today. And which caught me a little bit off guard because I just wanted to come to church. Well, apparently that's what I wanted to do. And um, so later that day I accepted, uh, accepted Christ. And so at that time I decided to try to share my faith with my um, estranged wife at the time. And her response to me was, quite frankly, that I joined a cult, that I was a new man and she wasn't interested in being married to that man anymore and filed for divorce. Yeah, a few years after my um, divorce, that, um, that co-worker that um, took me to church became my second wife. Um, a, few years, um, a few years after that, um, my second wife passed away in an accident and I was away at a Christian um, grief retreat. And, um, and, and I was basically just praying and the, the Lord uh, revealed to me that I would be married again. And, I've, and the woman he had for me was named Linda. Well, I didn't know a Linda, so I'm thinking that's kind of skeptical. But um, two years after that, I met and now married to my uh, current wife, Linda. Starting out my, um, my faith journey with um, a um, belief belief in God, but no real understanding of salvation. Um, I, um, I was content to try to do everything on my own. And um, so as I actually um, to learned that there was more to faith than, um, than works, that, um, that faith was through uh, grace, that, uh, or that salvation was through grace. The, um, uh, I've just become more like a sponge since then, and I've been wanting to to find out more and more as to what the, the different things. And since coming to faith, I've, um, I get, um, I've probably read through the Bible five or six times, um, although mostly the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament probably only two or three times. Um, but uh, just wanting to absorb everything I can uh, about that. And, and it's basically, I'm just learning to to live my faith and not be, a, not be ashamed of my faith. And uh, like I had a coworker that once used to ridicule me for, uh, for being a Christian and, uh, and, he, and he once said to me, he goes, what are you gonna pray for me? And I said, yeah, every day. And then, uh, but that same, that same uh, coworker that uh, used to ridicule me when he was actually in need of prayer, 
he actually came to me and he goes, I'm going through such and such. And he goes, would you pray for me? And so just living an authentic, um, living your life authentically. And um, like I said, you never know um, how that's going to impact somebody that, uh, like I said, that once um, was to ridicule um, who I was. Living your life authentically, I think, is what has uh, been the most impactful um, journey for me since, uh, since accepting Christ. My name is Ken, and this is my story of hope. Thank you, Ken, for sharing your story of hope with us this morning. Today we're concluding our series, uh, Stories of Hope, which we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, um, three weeks, this is the third week now, and we're going to be focusing on this central theme this morning, Hope for Forgiveness. That's our thought as we just kind of have a discussion here this morning, Hope for Forgiveness. When Howard Schwartz resigned from Starbucks in 2000, the coffee chain was experiencing unprecedented growth, charging everyone six to seven bucks for a cup of coffee. However, eight years later, when Starbucks was reeling from a bad economy in 2008 and stiff competition, Schultz resumed his role as Starbucks' chief executive, so he came back to his former position. He faced a challenging mission to lead the company in a turnaround. In an interview that was conducted about his return to the company after eight years of being, being away, Schultz commented that before they could move forward, they had to deal with their past and to be honest about the mistakes that they made in their past. So in that interview, this is what he said. He said, when I returned in January 2008, things were actually worse than what we had thought. The decisions that we made were very difficult, but first, there had to be a time where we stood up in front of everyone, the entire company and our 180,000 employees, and make a confession that the leadership at Starbucks had failed them. He went on to say this, we had to admit to ourselves and to the people of this company that we owned the mistakes that were made. And once we did, say this with me, church, it became a powerful turning point by his own lips, by his own admission. It became a very powerful turning point in their company's history. Schultz went on to say in the interview another powerful statement. He said, it's like when you have a secret and you get it out. The burden is off of your shoulders. It became a powerful turning point because we let the secret out about our company and the burden was lifted off of our shoulders. I believe that there are some of us in this room and watching online this morning that you need to experience a burden lifted off of your shoulders. That there is a secret that you've been carrying for a long time in your life that you need to let out. There is a powerful turning point that you need this day in your life. Turning points, when we look at that term, turning point, or turning point in my life, it is often fueled through forgiveness, oddly enough. I've discovered that this happens with forgiveness. When it comes to forgiveness, the turning point in the life is the realization that forgiveness is a two-way street. It is what, church? Being forgiven and what? Forgiving. It's a two-way street. It's about being forgiven in our own self, but it is also being able to have the ability to forgive other people in our lives. You cannot give what you have not received. 
and you cannot contain that which you have graciously received. In other words, you cannot genuinely forgive other people unless you first experience forgiveness in your life. And if you've experienced the transformational power of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life, you will not be able to contain it. You can't put a lid on it. You can't lock it down. It will just flow out of your life. So many times we seek forgiveness from God, but we deny the power of forgiveness to other people. So we seek forgiveness from God, but we deny forgiving other people. We hold it against our spouse or our parent or child or sibling or relative or coworker or neighbor or even, yes, the pastor. I'm forgiven, but I don't want to forgive that scoundrel. Right? I don't want to offer him forgiveness or her forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a one-way street this morning. That's the first thing that we need to clarify. We need to make that uh, ingrained within our minds this morning and on our heart, that forgiveness is not a one-way street. It is not you being forgiven, end of story. It is you being forgiven so that you can forgive others. It is a two-way street. C.S. Lewis expressed it so well when he said this in some of his literature. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the what? the inexcusable in you. So if God has forgiven the inexcusable in your life, then you should let go of some of the things that you've been holding on to against other people and forgive the inexcusable in other people. It's a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. When forgiveness of God is at work in our life, a turning point becomes, begins to emerge in our life. Because the shackles of guilt and shame are broken, giving an individual or a person or us the freedom to forgive others with God's divine forgiveness in us. The measuring stick for forgiveness, uh, the, the measuring stick of forgiving someone is absolutely based on the level of the forgiveness that you've experienced. So let me explain that a little bit to you this morning, that if you've experienced someone's limited forgiveness in your life with terms and conditions, then you will forgive other people with a limited forgiveness with terms and with boundaries and conditions. But if you've experienced the unlimited forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life, like it has no limits, it has no boundaries, then you will forgive other people with that same forgiveness that you've received. Luke gives us an amazing story about an individual who had a turning point in their life and they were desperately seeking this turnaround. They were desperately seeking this hope for forgiveness. And we catch the story in Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. We're only going to read a couple of verses this morning out of this story. But 36, 37, and 38, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And then in verse 37, we find when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Verse 38, then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them honestly at face value this morning when you just look at this story very quickly it is a very odd and awkward story 
Jesus, the Holy Son of God, has a prostitute pouring expensive perfume on his feet and using her hair as a washcloth to wipe them away. To some extent, I understand Simon's opposition and argument when he stands up and says to Jesus and to other people in the room that night, if the rabbi knew who she was, he would not allow her to do this. It seems very awkward for a dinner time, banquet time, for a woman to do this. But beneath the uncomfortableness, which sometimes you have to go beyond the uncomfortableness and the awkwardness of a situation and look a little bit deeper, we see an individual who is actually hoping for forgiveness. Her tears are signs of remorse and repentance for the guilt and shame that she has carried for much of her life. It is in this moment that we, dis we discover that she has a turning point like she has never had before in her life. Why was she kneeling at the feet of Jesus in such an emotional state, doing such erratic be behavioral kind of things? Because I believe she was sick of preparing herself night after night for her clients. It was a life she did not enjoy. And many nights she could, could not shake the feeling of being belittled and used for other people's sexual pleasure. And yet she would start the next day and do it all over again. The expensive perfume she used on Jesus could have been for her clients, which many theologians believe that was the case. I'm not a theologian, but I give you another, another view on this. Maybe she was using this expensive oil to cover up, or perfume to cover up her sins and the scent of others, particular men, trying desperately to cover up her sinful ways and not remember what had just happened in that day. We may not use expensive perfume, but we use other things in our life to cover up our sins, do we not? Yes, yes we do. It is clear from Luke's account that the woman kneeling at the feet of Jesus was seeking forgiveness and freedom from her lifestyle and her sinful ways. Many scholars believe that the lady was familiar with the message and was familiar with the ministry of Jesus. Perhaps she, was, she heard the teachings of Jesus and his declaration of forgiveness of sin on the forgiveness of sin in Luke chapter 5, just a couple of chapters earlier, verses 12 to 16. When some friends lowered the paralyzed man through the roof of a home to the feet of Jesus because there was no room to get into the room to present their paralyzed man to Jesus. Here's what we find starting at verse 19 of Luke chapter 5. But they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. The, the room was packed and people were standing outside of the, of the home and there was just no way to get in. So they went up to the roof, took off some tiles, and they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus, right at the feet of Jesus. And then in verse 20, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, what does he say? Say it with me, church. Your sins are forgiven. If the lady in Luke chapter 7 was there in Luke chapter 5, she heard Jesus say those words. She heard Christ say to the man who was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. I have a, a belief that if she was there, she was like, oh, I need that. I need the forgiveness that Christ is talking about. 
It was a turning point, certainly, for the life of the paralyzed man. Instantly, he was forgiven, and instantly, his life was restored. And if the woman from Luke 7 was in attendance in Luke 5, the message from Jesus, you are forgiven, certainly resonated within her spirit because she wanted forgiveness, and she wanted the restoration of her innocence. Once again, that's what she was searching for. Perhaps the woman in Luke 7 heard Jesus declare the words in Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 28. Maybe she was in the crowd on this day when Jesus said, then Jesus said to them, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Oh, Jesus, I hear your words. If you only knew the burdens that I carry, the turmoil, the lack of peace that I have, how I feel like I've been used by everyone in the city and I'm not loved. All you who are weary, carry heavy burdens. She heard those words. And I will do what? I'll give you rest. Oh Jesus, I need rest. In verse 29, take my yoke upon you, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for what? For your souls. Oh, Jesus, I need that rest for my soul. For my yoke is easy, Jesus goes on to say, to bear. And the burden I give to you is what? Light. That's, that's what I need, Jesus. Whether the woman in Luke chapter 7 was present in Luke chapter 5 or in Matthew chapter 11, we do not know. But we do know this, that somehow the woman in Luke chapter 7 found the inspiration and the courage to approach Jesus looking for forgiveness and a turning point in her life. We do know that. Reporter Jay Evanson wrote a true life story about two individuals, and he put the, the heading of this article in the newspaper was, Forgiveness has the power to change the future. Forgiveness has the power to change the future. He was reporting on this story. A 19-year-old boy by the name of Ryan Cushing and his friend stole a credit card one day, and they went on a shopping spree. For no particular reason, they were bored, they wanted something to do, so they stole a credit card and they went on a shopping spree. And in their shopping spree, they bought a frozen 20-pound turkey. Now, if I'm a 19-year-old boy with a stolen credit card, I can think of other things than a frozen turkey to buy. I don't need to tell you or what those items were, you just let your imagination go. Like buying a frozen turkey that weighs 20 pounds would be not even on my list. But they bought this frozen turkey that was 20 pounds and, and they... Paid for it with a stolen credit card. They hopped into the car. They went out to the highway, and they're going on a good clip. They're actually going faster than the speed limit. When Ryan gets a gr great, this brilliant idea that he's going to roll down the window, he throws a 20-pound turkey out the window to an oncoming car that goes through the windshield and hits Victoria Ravolo in the face. For six hours, she's in surgery. They're putting metal plates and other pieces of hardware in her face to kind of rebuild and reconstruct her face. The prosecutor in Rivolo's case stated that for crimes like this, victims would often feel like the punishment was never harsh enough. That even if death penalty was available, even death from the perpetrator would not satisfy the victim. So how would Victoria react to what had happened to her? Imagine you going down the highway, 20-pound turkey comes through your, frozen turkey comes through your windshield. How would you feel? On the day of the court hearing, 
the young man walked in. And the woman was there that day, when uh, Victoria. And there was a hush as he walked in, and he went immediately to her. And he, and with tears running down his face, he whispered so that everybody could hear. But he whispered in a very humbling way, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I've done to you. Would you please forgive me? With tears running down both of their faces, she embraces Ryan. And the courtroom is waiting to see what will happen next. Will she choke him? Or what will she do? To which she said, it's okay. I just want to make your life the best it can be. And they said, the reporter said on that day, and that moment, in that embrace, with those tears, and those kind words, there was not a dry eye in the place. Hardened prosecutors, the judge, Reporters, everyone in the place had tears streaming down their face. And the reporter concluded his story with this statement. He said, slowly, humans seem to be learning to understand the power of forgiveness as a healing agent. It appears to be stronger than any surgery, counseling, or anger management course. It is a healing agent. Forgiveness. It is stronger than any surgery, stronger than any counseling session, stronger than any anger management course you can take. Because forgiveness gives us freedom, amen? How does it give us freedom? Well, it gives us freedom from guilt and shame. That's what it does. That guilt and shame that we carry in our life, forgiveness gives us freedom from that. And that's exactly what the woman in Luke chapter 7 was looking for as she knelt at the feet of Jesus and she was sobbing and crying and as she was pouring perfume on his feet, she was looking for forgiveness. She wanted freedom from the guilt and the shame that she had carried in to that moment where she knelt at the feet of Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand my words this morning. I am not saying that forgiveness means that you always get freedom from the consequences of your choices. Sometimes in life you live with those consequences your entire life. But what it does mean is that forgiveness is available to us that gives us a freedom that we can get up and walk out of the room of guilt and shame. That we no longer need to stay in that dark room. We no longer need to be under the thumb of feeling guilty and shameful for our life because we can have forgiveness from Jesus Christ that gives us this freedom that says guilt and shame no longer has dominion over me. Yes, I may live with the consequences, but no longer do I need to feel like I'm worthless or hopeless or that there is no help for me at all in this life. I'm leaving my guilt and shame behind. I'm walking out of the room because I have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ living in me. That's what this woman was looking for in Luke 7 as she comes to the feet of Jesus. She is looking to walk out of that room, leaving her guilt and shame behind. From Luke 7, we see several things that come from this forgiveness the first thing that we see is this one is that forgiveness hinges on repentance you cannot have forgiveness without repentance 
without some type of remorse, without some type of confession in your life. Forgiveness will not happen from Jesus Christ until you repent. And many times you will not get the forgiveness of other people until you go through repentance. I am, at least this is the easy one we say, I am sorry. I am sorry for the things that I've done. The woman's tears and humble attitude and her expensive gift all spoke of the repentant heart that she was having in that moment. I am sorry, Jesus, as she was sobbing. She was probably babbling some words that no one understood, and she was just so remorseful of the condition that she finds herself in that she just wants some type of relief from the sin and the guilt and the shame that she carries. You see, repentance is not always about saying the sinner's prayer. If you scour the story found in Luke chapter 7, you will notice that she never said a sinner's prayer. You know, in the church, sometimes we often push people towards, just say the sinner's prayer. You know, say these words after me, and and you'll have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life. And you know, I've seen people who have said the sinner's prayer, and their lives have been dramatically changed. And I know of other people in the church who have said the sinner's prayer, and there is no difference in their life. They might even be worse than they were before. This woman does not say some pre-recorded prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sins. She just, in this emotional state of tears, and, and, and it's an emotional a moment of where she's just repenting of the Lord without ever saying a sinner's prayer. You ever notice the guy on the cross next to Jesus? What does he say? What? <laughs> you forgive me if you are the lord and what does jesus say well because you said the sinner's prayer today on the cross with me you will be in heaven with me no he goes what you will be in paradise with me today there is a time and a moment for saying the sinner's prayer but there are other times when you just have no words to express the tremendous shame and guilt of sin that's in your life There there is no prayer. There are no words. You just fall down at the feet of Jesus, weeping and seeking His forgiveness and restoration in your life so that you can get up and walk out of the room of shame and guilt. Forgiveness hinges on repentance. There is another character in in Luke chapter 7. His name is Simon. He's the one that's arranged this whole thing tonight or for that night. It's a banquet. It's, a, it's an, an event where other people are coming to see Jesus. Did Simon seek forgiveness from Jesus? If you haven't read the story, I'll give you the answer. No, he doesn't. Simon may not have been guilty of immoral behavior like the lady was, but he was certainly guilty of pride and arrogance as he judged both Jesus and the woman. But Simon never asks for forgiveness. He never says the sinner's prayer. He never sheds a tear. Because Simon is standing in this story thinking, I don't need forgiveness. My life is okay. Things are good. I don't need to be forgiven of anything. You see, the woman was guilty of sins of the flesh. Simon was guilty of sins of the Spirit. There is a difference. Both individuals in this story were bankrupt and could not facilitate paying the debt of their sins that they had in their life. 
Paul gives us this warning to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He said, because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us repent. Let us confess. Let us offer, receive the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ into our life for everything that can defile our body or spirit. From everything that can defile our what? Our flesh. The things that we commit in the body, but also the things that we commit in the spirit. And let us work to, toward complete holiness because we what? Because we fear God. You see, the sins of the flesh are easier to identify than the, the sins of the Spirit. Sins of the flesh are much more pronounced. If you steal from somebody, you see it. If you murder someone, you see it. You have an inappropriate relationship with somebody, you're eventually going to see it. Like the sins of the flesh are visible, they're prominent, we see them. And we, we as Christians, I'm saying, we point our finger at the world and say, oh, such horribleness, such sinfulness, such immorality. Are you tracking with me? Because here comes the hammer. While we are in the church committing sins against the Spirit, where we are proud, and arrogant, and judgmental. And in this story, Simon is just as guilty of sin as the woman is kneeling at the feet of Jesus. The turning point in the woman's life was when she became a seeker of Jesus. Patrick Morley wrote this powerful st statement when he said, the turning point in our lives is when we, we stop seeking the God we want and start seeking the God who is. Forgiveness hinges on repentance that seeks the God who is and not the God we want. Simon is standing in this room seeking the God who he wants. The woman in this story is seeking the God who is able to forgive sin. Forgiveness hinges on the repentance that seeks the God who is. True repentance is based on a couple of key admissions in our life. First of all, the first thing that we need to admit is this, that my life is going in the wrong direction. The paralyzed man in Luke chapter 5, his life was going in the wrong direction. His friends knew it too. That's why they wanted to take him to Jesus. The woman in Luke chapter 7 realized it too. She realized that her life, excuse me, was going in the wrong direction. That's why she's at the feet of Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is your life going in the wrong direction? Because sin will do something to you. Do you know what it will do? It will take you further than you want to go, and it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. And it will leave you in this dark room of hopelessness. On October 1347, a fleet was returning from the Black Sea back to Europe, and they had a death sentence with them. Most of the sailors were dead by the time they reached the European shores, and the few who did make it wished they hadn't. Before it was all over, one-third of Europe's population would be dead. 25 million people died from the Black Plague. The bubonic plague. There was no cure. And for those who lived in that time, they say there was no hope. The healthy quarantined the infected, and the infected counted their days to when they would be infected. My question is, and historians have asked this question, was this the world's deadliest plague? It's a good question, is it not? 
Was this the world's deadliest plague? And I would argue this morning, no, it's not. Because the Bible gives us something called, what have we been talking about? Sin. It is a dark blight that destroys the soul and the body of mankind. It is far more powerful than the dark plague. Sin makes the plagues of this world and diseases of this world seem like a coal sore because sin sees the world with no God in it. Sin has made you the God. The cure for a life going in the wrong direction and admitting that your life is going in the wrong direction is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is what Paul writes, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made what? Right. So that we could stop going on the wrong path and start going where? On the right path. Through Jesus Christ, who never sinned, His offering to us is that we can have victory over sin so that we could be made right with God through Jesus Christ. Is your life going in the wrong direction? Let Christ take you in the right direction. Amen? You see, repentance is an admission to Jesus that my life is not going in the right direction. It's actually going in the wrong direction. And we need His help to turn things around. That's exactly what the woman in Luke 7 was doing at the feet of Jesus. She was admitting to Jesus in that moment of time, my life is going in the wrong direction. And I need the right direction. There's another admission that we must make when it comes to true repentance. It's this, that my life needs to go in an alternate direction that my life needs to go in an alternate direction. Showing up at the banquet was admitting that her life needed to go in a different way, a different direction, an alternate direction. You see, the act of repentance is, is admitting that our life is going in the wrong direction and it needs to go in the right direction, but in order to go in the right direction, we need this alternate direction to take place, to show itself. In church lingo, lingo, we often say repentance is doing a 180. Have you ever heard that? Repentance is doing a 180. I would argue that we need to rethink that statement or slogan because sometimes doing a 180 is taking you back to the very place where your troubles began. You need an alternate direction. A different way. Repentance is about discovering an alternate direction. If we go back to 2 Corinthians again, in verse uh, chapter 5, here's what we find Paul writing again. So we're just jumping down a few more verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. That is an alternate direction. Instead, they will live for who? For Christ, who died and was raised from the dead. Paul goes on to say this in verse 16. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. And then in verse 17, Paul makes this epic statement. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ, say it with me, church, has become a new person. That's an alternate direction. You become a new person. Keep reading with me. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. It is a hope for forgiveness that is based on Jesus. It is a new way of living in our life. It is an alternate course that we can have through Jesus Christ in our, 
in our life. The woman in Luke 7 discovered an alternate direction. She discovered a new way and a new life. Listen to what Jesus tells her in verse 47 and 48 of Luke chapter 7. I tell you, her sins, and they are many. So Jesus is not sugarcoating this. He's not sweeping her sin under the rug. Don't misunderstand what's happening here. Jesus just calls her out on the carpet, pulls her out on the carpet and says this, I tell you, as he's speaking to everyone in this room, her sins, they are many. By her own admission of being here. Have been what, church? Say it with me. They have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. And then Jesus goes on to say this in verse 48. Then Jesus said to the woman, say it with me, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. It's forgiven. Forgiveness led the woman to a turning point in her life where she discovered a new life through Jesus Christ. If you go back to verse 37, what happens in verse 37? Let me just recap for you for a second. This is what happens. This woman who is a prostitute, who is known around the city. She has a name. People call her that name. She has a lifestyle that is is an immoral lifestyle. She has a lot of baggage. She has a lot of sin. She has a lot of shame. She drags that all in. She hears that Jesus is at Simon's house for supper or for dinner, for a banquet. And so she barges into a room that she is not invited to. The culture of this day, a woman would not be in that room. It would only be men. And Jesus, and like all the other guys, they would be kind of laying on their side, pulled up to the table with their feet kind of pointing in behind them. And they would lay in that posture and eat and have conversation and talk. And their windows and doors would be open so that people could see what was going on. It was an open banquet, if you want to call it that. And this woman barges into a place that she's not welcomed and she shouldn't be there, but she barges herself into this room and she finds the feet of Jesus. She's not even looking at the face of Jesus. She's looking at the feet of Jesus. And she bows down and she begins to seep, weep and sob and she pours perfume on his feet and rubs her hair on his feet. And she's there in that moment saying, I need a different way. I need to be forgiven. I need to leave the shame and the guilt behind. There's verse 37. Now you skip ahead to verse 48. Jesus is on his feet. And the woman is on her feet. And she is looking at Jesus eye to eye. She sees the eyes of Christ. She sees the mouth of Christ. And she seems like she's in another world when she sees the words leave the lips of Jesus. Say them with me. You are forgiven. Talk about a different way. And talk about a transformation. You are forgiven. Jesus wants to look you in the eye this morning. He wants you to see the words lip leave his lips this morning. He wants to tell you that you are forgiven no matter what you have ever done in your life. He wants to tell you that there is a new way. There is a better way. And it's through His forgiveness. And He wants to give it to you this morning. And He wants you to see the words 
you are forgiven. There are three types of people in this story that I believe there are three types of people in this room and watching online this morning. Here they are. First of all, we see that those who need forgiveness, this woman desperately needed for forgiveness. She barges into the room and she's not a welcomed in. She kind of kneels at the feet of Jesus and she's pleading, I need, I need what you've talked about, Jesus. What you sit in Luke 5 to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. I need that, Jesus. I need to, for you to speak the words as you did in Matthew 11 where you said, my burdens will be light because I've come to you and you will take them from me. I need this, Jesus, in my life. She needed forgiveness. There are some in this room who have Secrets that you have not spoken about that needs forgiveness. Things that you have done. Places that you've gone. There's stuff in your life that you're dragging along that you need forgiveness from. You need to walk out of the room of shame and guilt. You need forgiveness. We see another person, those who are blinded towards forgiving or forgiveness. Simon was that guy. He's there, called the banquet, pulled, pulled Jesus in. He doesn't even treat Jesus appropriately in this story, like he should have. What does he do? He's blinded to any need for forgiveness in his life. He doesn't see his pride. He doesn't see his arrogance. He doesn't see his judgmental spirit. He just need, he's blinded towards it. He needs it, but he's blind towards it. There are some of us in this room and watching online where the enemy has so blinded us, we don't even know or see the need for forgiveness and then the beautiful one those who are forgiven when the woman stands up and jesus stands up and says to her you are forgiven what a beautiful scene there are some of us in this room and watching online this morning where we know the forgiveness of jesus christ amen it's a beautiful thing and we celebrate it with you which one are you today are you the one who needs forgiveness are you the one who is blinded towards forgiveness or are you the one who is forgiven? And if you are, we, we celebrate with you. On January 16, 2013, André Cassongs died in Paris at the age of 86. He was a French inventor in the, in the 30s, in his 30s, in the basement of his house. He designed this, this toy, this device. I, I know it as a red device. It had a glass, two knobs. It had aluminum powder behind the glass so that whenever you move the knobs, the, the little stylus would go in all kinds of different directions. You could write your name. You could just do squiggly marks or you could draw a beautiful picture. It caught on. And they brought it to the America, or they brought it to North America. And it, in the 20th century, this toy has become one of the top 100 toys of the 20th century. He called it the magic screen. We call it Etch-a-Sketch. Ever used one before? The Etch-a-Sketch? Yeah, of course you did. You probably bought it for your kids and then you ended up playing for it, playing with it. Honestly, I thought it was a miraculous invention, but one I hated to use because I couldn't draw with it. I was constantly doing something. Do you ever do this? start over again, right? I can't get this right, right? 
That was, that was a sweet part of it. It was kind of magical in a way that you could, you could scribble and draw and do all kinds of things, and then you just turn it upside down, you give it a shake, and boom, the picture's gone, and you start afresh. That's a sketch. You know, it's kind of like that with Jesus. You're an Etch-a-Sketch. Some of you in this room, you've carried a lot of stuff. You have, a, you have an ugly picture of your life. Like you've been drawing and messing it up, and, it just, and you, don't, you don't know what to do with it. It's just there. Like, what do I do with that? And, and if we come to Jesus, this is what happens. He will give us forgiveness. He'll turn us upside down, give us a little shake, and turn us over and go, your sins are forgiven. Start anew. You have a fresh, clean slate. Let's try this again with my help and with my grace, with my strength. Jesus wants to offer you the power of forgiveness this morning. Do you need to turn your life around? Do you need a turning point in your life? Do you need to accept his forgiveness that he freely offers to you and to us this morning? Will you allow him to turn you upside down give you a little shake and remove the sins and the marks of sin from your life and flip you over and say, you are forgiven. Start again with my grace and my strength. Why not become a story of hope through the forgiveness of Jesus this way? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your tremendous love and your tremendous grace. We thank you for the story that we see of of this lady who we know very little about, but we do know that she had a past and it was not a very pleasant or good past. And she comes to you and you eventually look her in the eye and say, your sins are forgiven. Lord, we may not be just like this lady, but we too have a past and sins that we have committed. And we've lived with that shame and guilt for so long that we're trapped in this dark room and we have no way of getting out. And so today, we call out in the name of Jesus with repentance and confession, Lord, forgive us so that we're able to leave that room of guilt and shame. For some of us, turn us upside down, give us a shake, tell us our sins are forgiven, and then empower us to live a life that paints a beautiful picture of who you are living in and through us. Lord, we need to be mindful and sensitive to the sins that we commit and the importance of confessing them to you and living a life that honors and glorifies you. May we live in that hope today. In Jesus' name, amen.